This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. The barley has everything in it that you're going to need to make that flavor, but it's in the wrong form. It's large structures, large starches and proteins. During the malting process, those are broken down into individual pieces. And then in the kiln, they're put back together in new and complex, unique, flavorful ways. So definitely the route that you take, the path uh, during malting, whether it's on the floor or in a vessel at long or slow, is going to have an impact on how the final malt will taste. This week on the show, three people who know a lot about malting are here to talk about base malt flavor development and the variables driving a lot of creativity in brewing. My name is Aaron McLeod. I'm the director of the Hartwick College Center for Craft Food and Beverage. My name is Sebastian Wolfram. I am uh, Epiphany Craft Malt. Yeah, hi, this is Curtis Davenport at Admiral Maltings in Alameda, California. I don't hear a lot of craft brewers talk about malt functionality. They tend to focus on things like flavor and maybe brew house yield. We just don't hear a lot about performance until there's a major problem of some kind. Then there's this concept of terroir, which I think most folks understand mostly as it relates to wine. We're not here to dive deep into malt functionality as we have in past episodes, and we're not here to talk about barley terroir. We'll be talking about something much more interesting the concept of functional terroir. Aaron, tell us what the heck that means. Well, in our work here at the center, we we work with a large number of malt houses, like 75 malt houses across the whole country. And we're we're in a time where there's a rapidly expanding variety of malt that's come to market. You know, I think today there's a malt house in 30 states, whereas 10 years ago there was probably 
you know, a malt house in less than less than 10 states had a malt house. So what we see that gives us the opportunity to see now is this huge range of variation. And that variation in malt comes from what I see as three distinctive parts. There's the the, the different genetics, the different barley varieties that are being used. And then you have all of these different growing environments, you know, that are very different all the way from, you know, the, 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 the traditional growing areas in the Midwest to California, to North Carolina, to Maine. And then you have differences in processing um, that occur in the malt houses, uh, different equipment, different styles, different mentalities. So when we take those three variables and put them together they combine to give us a fact that you can take a, a variety grow it in a certain environment to express itself in a certain way and then make a malt out of that that's unique and flavorful and functional and so when we put those three things together to me that's functional terroir and this isn't some abstract concept this is something you see in your lab every day right yeah, absolutely. So a good example would be to find barley varieties that grow here in New York State. Uh, we have a cooler, wetter growing season. Um, we have to avoid the typical North American spring varieties because they're too susceptible to sprout damage. So we started looking around for things that would grow here a little bit better and resist that ability, that, that wantonness to sprout at the end of the season. and um, something we tried was a six row variety and uh we felt a lot of pushback from brewers oh well we don't want a six row and you guys have talked at, uh, on the podcast in previous uh, episodes about you know why that is and the experiences that brewers have um and and those experiences grow out of their experience with grain from the midwest high protein low extract but when we started to grow a variety called quest a six row variety in the northeast uh, and managed it very specifically to keep the protein low by, by not applying too much fertilizer. We were able to get a very low protein grain around 10% and extracts, you know, at 82, 83%. And this is nothing like what, what uh, you would typically expect from a six row barley. Uh, or a six-row barley malt. And so it really flipped on its end the fact that you can take something and put it into a different environment and get a completely um, different functional result. Sebastian, how does the location of your malt house influence your approach to malting? So in our case here in the southeast, uh, we use uh, solely uh, winter barley and and varieties that are very, very new uh, to being grown here. uh, less than 10 years and so uh what we end up having uh in terms of specs is a um slightly uh lower protein than what people would expect from their typical american spring two row um but also um they're they're not as as hot as people say so our enzyme package is is a little bit more damped down uh still very functional Winter varieties, specifically around here, are very soft, um, and they absorb much easier and quicker water than a, than a, a spring variety. Um, and so a whole steeping and moisture uptake, even then during germination, um, is, is a lot faster um, and, and, and very different. And so those pieces all play together when we 
we we come out with our finished uh, malt and so in our case in order to make color for example we we, ha we play a lot more uh with moisture and temperature than i think a typical uh a larger brew house in a more traditional growing area with spring barley now when you talk about uh, water uptake being faster that's different from a variety being hot so to speak right Yes. So in our case, right, we use primarily Violetta, which is uh, an imported, in that sense, uh, uh, winter two-row. And then if you compare that with Copeland, um, it's much more denser kernel, harder when they when they, when it gets harvested. And so the the moisture uptake, um, if you compare them, uh, you know, within within four or five hour initial steep on our winter variety, we we come quickly. Uh, over the 30% mark, whereas with these uh, more typical spring varieties, we're getting to the mid-20s if you're lucky after four hours. So um, it's a very different you know, starting point. We actually do a single steep with our winter barley here. And then based on the equipment we have, we transfer a wet transfer into our germination and then... Uh, bring the adjusted remaining moisture over the next couple of days during germination by uh, spraying it on, essentially. Um, and it's, uh, you know, our water consumption is very low, uh, but more importantly, we, we can really slowly take, take our malt uh, up to the 42 44% moisture that you want to get to, uh, you know, without further unevening the batch uh and what i mean by that is if you if you if you jump in and start out and you get too quickly to that 42 44 final moisture content uh the ones that have sprouted and gotten started pretty quickly those kernels tend to keep going and at that fast rate and it's harder for all the the mid to slow ones to catch up and that's uh, uh you know and Adjusting the the moisture content to to not let this get ahead too far is is a is a very good tool on the in the early days uh, to make that happen and so um, uh, yeah we make we make good use of that uniqueness of our varieties here. Curtis and Sebastian, you you have very different malt houses in very different parts of the country. Let's say I send each of you a load of the same barley and you process you both process it in your malt houses, then I bring that malt into my brew house. Just how different will those two batches be and what differences am I most likely to experience? I think if we were to take the same um, exact lot of barley um, and both malted and, and try to aim for the same color spec, let's say we aim for a a, a two lava bond um, pale malt, um, we'll both have different ways of getting to that point. Um, and so I think the probably the most likely differences between those two malts would be the flavor, um, and that would be a result of uh, kind of the, the condition of the green malt going into the kiln and then um, what happens inside the kiln. Um, so... Uh, the differences in our steeping um, and germination um, are sounds like Sebastian does a um, single immersion steep at Admiral. We would have uh, two or three immersions. Um, and then our germination is on the floor, um, which is typically at least a day longer um, than pneumatic malting, you know, for the same 
barley variety to achieve um, thorough modification. So we'd have uh, a, a barley that was steeped um, differently, germinated probably a day longer um, on our floor. And then uh, as a result, you have a green malt that's in a different condition going into the kiln. So the, uh, the way it's kilned then would produce different flavors. Even if we tried to mimic our kilning profile and you know use the same cure temperatures um i think you would end up with a a a malt that had a a different aroma um and and flavor profile i think what this is giving us is a lot more variation in malts than we may have seen in the past i find that something exciting i noticed that these guys then even name their malts differently because they may not even fit into you know the narrow, um, the the narrowly defined scope of a pale malt, right? They they have different unique properties. Sebastian, what's important for producing pilsner malt in your malt house? Uh, the key for us is um, to get, uh, I guess, the, the the modification far enough so that the uh, the malt is 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 you know what we refer to as functional. So it, it's got low beta glucans, uh, high DP, um, high alpha amylase, um, while while still having some of those uh, you know slightly under modified characters uh, of, of some kind of grassy greenness uh, for the pilsner malt. And um, and uh, and so in our case, we the, the primary driver on how we control this is through our moisture content. So we tend to we tend to stay on the low end uh, with our pilsner. The fan level is what we're trying to keep down. So the the, the potential for proteins and, and colors that are being developed during modification uh, that then then really come out during kilning. Curtis, how about you? What's what's important for making Pilsner malt in your malt house? Um, we we try to primarily first work with the lowest protein possible barley that we can, um, so that reduces the uh, potential for color. It also um, gives us a less vigorous germination, and then you know uh, part of. W- what we're also trying to limit is uh, the development of real green vegetal um, DMS precursors, uh, aromas of that nature. Um, and so using a lower protein content barley and germinating it at slightly cooler temperatures, um, we can avoid um, some of those green grassy flavors that won't be driven off in the kiln to the same extent that they would in a darker malt. Beyond that, um, we've try to work with barley varieties and we're kind of always searching for uh, new varieties with a lower s over t requirement Um, so something that will get thorough modification and break down beta glucans um, without having a a high s over t and creating too much soluble protein that will then produce color in the kiln Um, so it allows us to uh, not have to limit our kiln temperatures you know to limit color color development so if we can uh, turn the heat up a little bit and still hit 1.8 you're going to get a a better cleaner flavor 
All right, let's talk about pale malts. Sebastian, tell us about your process. We call it foundation. It's it's what we refer to as base malt, and I think that that the what we aim for here is is a is an American two row uh, pale malt. Uh, absolutely. Um, so we try to get um, uh, the the colors uh, in a very similar range, uh, uh, two and a half to three and a half. Um, we tend to stick right around three. Uh, the um, in our case, uh, we we uh, the germination is fairly similar to our pilsner, except we uh, we go in with with a slightly higher moisture content to uh, develop a little bit more color and and have also a, a, a better modification of the, of the entire kernel, um, and uh, and then during kilning uh, in in the uh, last two hours really of the of the final curing is where we um go another five degrees uh higher so it's it's all celsius where we are so i haven't really converted it over but um we go to about 90 92 celsius uh, whereas our pilsner is is um 82 and then a final hour of 84 so it's uh yeah it drives uh, a lot more flavor and color into the into that pale malt Curtis, what's key for making pale malt in your malt house? So we don't actually make um, anything that we describe as a pale malt. Um, we have two English-style pale ale malts, and then we have a malt called Feldbloom um, that actually uh, would, I would say, hit most of the characteristics of pale malt, but we just uh, avoid the uh, sort of generic term pale malt um so but I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about the pale ale malts if that yeah, works sounds good um so for the the pale ale malts we're looking for two and a half to three and a half color um and we germinate those pretty similar to to pills malt um in both of those styles we're looking for good thorough modification um you know uh plenty of enzyme synthesis so there's you know plenty of alpha amylase for um, extract, and then also uh, getting rid of, um, you know, trying to achieve a a, a good beta glucan level below 120 um, for uh, smooth loudering. And so we'll start with you know a, a similar green malt as we would with pills, um, and then the big difference is uh, really just comes down to about. Uh, 10 degrees in the kiln, uh, 10 degrees higher of curing temperature. So our, um, or sorry, I, I misspoke, 20 degrees. Um, so our pills malt would be cured um, at just over 185 degrees Fahrenheit. That's applied air. And the pale ale malts um, would be cured at 205. And so that's just producing... Um, you know, a, a different range and, and more Maillard products. Um, but we're still really only applying that heat at the end of kilning. Um, we want to make sure to dry out the green malt um, and preserve all of the enzymes um, or as, as much of the enzymes as possible so we can still deliver a malt with um, plenty of diastatic power and alpha amylase uh, for the brewer. We have two pale ale malts, and one is, um, this is a good uh, illustration of, I think, functional terroir, um, where we make 
um, two pale ale malts, one made with Copeland barley and one made with um, a UC Davis bread barley called Butta 12. Um, and the kiln cycle is the exact same between those two. The recipe is, is the exact same. Um, but the way we process them is different uh, based on the variety. So Copeland, for us to get thorough modification of Copeland, um, we're able to do a slightly shorter steeping um, and a one day shorter germination than the UC Davis variety. <clears throat> um, and what that means is, you know, the, the green malt that goes into the kiln, although the, the kiln recipe is the exact same, um, we end up with malts that have really striking flavor differences. Um, and whether that's coming from, you know, the variety itself or how that variety needs to work its way through the malt house, um, I think it's probably a, a uh, you know, it's, it's what Aaron, I think it's what Aaron's referring to as functional terroir. It's not just that that barley variety has some inherent flavor differences. It's that when you malt that variety and brew with that variety, it's going to produce a beer with different flavor. Uh, so Maiden Voyage... Um, which is a malt made with Copeland tends to be um, more fermentable, and so you'll get um, a you know a drier wort. And um, whereas the Gallagher's Best, which is made with Butta Twelve, um, that tends to have a uh, a richer, um, a deeper body in the finished beer, um, and a little more of like an intense biscuity um flavor and aroma and so that's a, a great example of how two varieties can produce um two different malts even when they're we, we try to treat them the same i, I want to talk about something that I, I find very interesting so molsters are are intentional about the varieties they choose to work with um and there's this interesting juxtaposition of the palate is now bigger. There's more varieties I can use versus, um, from what I can tell, any given molster, no matter how big or small you are, really only wants to work with, you know, two or three varieties at, at, a, at a given time. Because, um, as we've talked about before on the show, varieties are like they're like children. Like they all have their own personalities, right? And so you have to try to get to know that variety in your own malt house. So talk a little bit about that, the push and pull there between the ability to do, you know, to express functional terroir by using two different varieties to create, you know, two different final malts versus the need to spend the time to really get to know a variety so that you can optimize it in your, in your malt house. Yeah, that's right. It, it it takes a lot of time to to get to know it, and even on a year to year basis to get to know a, a particular um, crop year of a particular variety. Um, and then there's also you know the complexity goes beyond the maltster learning how to um, to malt that variety, and the brewer learning how to brew it. There's also the farmers who. Um, need to get used to growing that variety so it's a long you know a long timeline when we're thinking about transitioning from one variety to another how many variety what's how many varieties do you work with in, in your mold house we work with two primarily um we're often doing trial batches of newer varieties but our our core malts are made from two varieties which are copeland and butta 12 all right 
it sounds like you have made an intentional decision to, hey, let's focus on these two varieties and, and really optimize them versus let's let's try a dozen different varieties in here. Yeah, I mean, we are trying different varieties on a on a small scale, um, you know, like a few hundred pounds at a time and, and doing steeping trials to um, learn how they uptake water. Um, that's the probably the biggest change we make, you know, between varieties is, is how to steep them uh, to, you know, pave the way for a good modification. The main reason we use um, uh, Buda 12 is that that's been the variety we've had the best results from um, that is also performing well um, for the farmer. So it's it's actually, it's pretty risky um, for the farmers in the Sacramento Valley to be growing Copeland barley. We know it makes great malt, um, but it doesn't have the disease resistance package that Buda 12 and the other UC Davis varieties that have been bred for. Um, so most of the Copeland we use is actually sourced from uh, Northern California in the Klamath Basin, whereas our Buda 12 is sourced from the Sacramento Valley. And that's the reason for that is agronomic. Curtis, don't you have a relationship with the breeders at UC Davis? Yes, we do. Uh, we do have a relationship with the breeders at, at UC Davis, and we're working with them to um, uh, breed varieties that perform well agronomically, um, have good yield and disease resistance uh, for the region that we're sourcing from, um, and that are also uh, effective for us as maltsters and desirable to brewers. So yeah, we, we are working with UC Davis to to breed new varieties that um, that fit that bill. Here in the Southeast, it is really challenging to talk about a variety of, uh, of, of barleys to choose from. Uh, there's a very, very limited choice, especially when it comes to uh, malt house performance. I mean, we've basically, uh, over the years, uh, have, have gotten to know uh, Violetta here that we, we really almost exclusively used. Um, there's a couple of others, uh, Calypso, um, Endeavor, Flavia, uh, you know, have come out over the years. But, um, you know, the, 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 the breeding is still quite a ways away, and there's so little uh, barley demand uh, otherwise, uh, if it's not for the small maltsters here in the region, um, that uh, it's only a handful of growers who are who are embarking with with us and, and NC State and Virginia Tech and uh, uh, some of the the uh, extension agents who are really active in some places uh, to grow for malting specifically. We also don't have a whole lot of choice on uh, you know protein levels and 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 plumpness and all these good things that you would like to have. Uh, a lot more say in but there's only a certain amount grown and you in some years when it's really challenging you just have to have to work with uh w w what you're given it's it's a, not an ideal place to uh uh you know grow malting barley to begin with and so uh, even the winter varieties are are sort of often challenged and so a lot of how we do do our malting uh process uh, is is sort of reactive uh in a, in a in a in a specific way on you know how how do i make make a good pilsner mold right with this specific lot um and uh and so they're they're not as homogenous as you as i would like them to be and uh and the the year over year variation is 
is it can be significant depending on um, how the growing season went here in the southeast over the winter. Aaron, I've heard you say that brewing really begins in the greenhouse, which is true. Without barley breeders, we wouldn't have varieties that meet the needs of growers, maltsters, and brewers. With amber waves of grain expanding beyond traditional growing regions, what happens when barley growing comes to new areas that don't have breeders to support it? Well, the first thing we do is we try everything we can get our hands on. So... Uh, for instance, that New York was a good example. In the Northeast, there was, you know, in the last two, three decades, there hasn't been anyone actively breeding malting barley. So we went out there and scoured the globe, essentially, um, working with extension agents uh, at land-grant universities to bring in as much germplasm as we could and try it. There's really two strategies when you breed malting barley. There's narrow adaption. So this is what's going on in like Western Canada. We have, you know, phenomenal varieties like Metcalf and Copeland uh, and Synergy uh, that were bred uh, to, to, to grow well uh, in a very narrow region, right? Saskatchewan, Alberta, um, and some of Manitoba. And they do great there. And when you take them out of there, their sort of home and native land, they do terrible, right? So Synergy sprouts in the Northeast, you know, Metcalf Lodges. Um, Curtis mentioned that Copeland, you know, while they love it in the malt house, it has some disease susceptibility because of different pressure in California. So, so we find that these narrowly adapted varieties don't work very well. Um, the global, some of the global plant breeding companies like Lima Grain, um, Syngenta, Sacobra, uh, RGT, they take a different uh, attitude. They're trying to find varieties that will work well um, in a in a large number of regions. You know that they can produce and get to market that will grow in Europe, North America, South America. And so we have found a lot of success there. Um, that's where uh, the variety Violetta that Sebastian mentioned came from, Lima Grain Cereal Seeds. Um, it has very wide adaption. So we also find that Violetta works great as a winter barley in New York. Um, so uh, first you have to screen, you have to screen and test, screen and test. And that does take several years. And like you said, um, my mentor, uh, Dr. Michael Edney at the Green Research Laboratory told me when I started in this business that barley is very phenotypic. And I don't, I didn't really understand what he meant at the time, but now I realize that it's like the way we think about, you know, dog breeds, you, you can tell a Labrador retriever from a poodle right away and barley varieties have just that much personality. And so it takes a while to get to know them, the growers to get to know them and the maltsters and brewers to get to know them. So uh, once we find something that works, um, we tend to stick with it for a while um, while we try new things to replace it. up. And this, I think, is giving brewers an up, huge opportunity to make their beers uh, with ingredients that they never uh, could have got their hands on before. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Support for this podcast is brought to you by 
ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, tri-clamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by... Brewer Supply Group is now the proud exclusive distributor of Dingaman's Malt. BSG is thrilled to partner with the Dingaman's family and to distribute their superior quality malts to brewers, distillers, and homebrewers in the U.S. and Canada. Dingaman's Malt combines modern techniques with their long-standing focus on quality and service to their customers and remains 100% independent and family-owned. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. And thank you also to... Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation live streams data from your active fermentations, allowing you to remotely track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Try it free for 30 days. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. As you might imagine, there still aren't any opportunities to gather in person for district meetings, but that doesn't slow us down. After all, Master Brewers, which was formed in 1887, has survived more than one pandemic. Spring and summer have brought us numerous webinars and virtual district meetings, many of which can be replayed on demand. The District Texas Annual Summer Meeting in Kerrville is August 7th through the 9th. The Master Brewers Brewery Systems Technology and Maintenance course begins September 13th in Madison. You've heard me talking about the 2020 World Brewing Congress for several months now. As I've mentioned, it's my favorite industry conference. I've been looking forward to it since the 2016 WBC ended. Unfortunately, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we won't be able to gather in Minneapolis as planned. As much as that stinks, there is a pretty serious silver lining. WBC 2020 is going fully virtual, which means you can access the world's most cutting-edge research in brewing science and technology easily and affordably from the comfort of your own home. Registration for WBC Connect is now open, with information on both free and paid programming options. Visit worldbrewingcongress.org for details, or check the direct link in the show notes. The District Northwest Fall Meeting is scheduled for October 9th and 10th. The Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course is October 25th through November 6th in Madison. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Did you know we have a team of Master Brewers members like Bryn Keenan and Dominic Charbonneau who rate district presentations and recommend guests for this show? Do you want to be part of that team? It's an important job and it only takes about two hours per year. Learn more at masterbrewerspodcast.com slash working group or look for more details in the Master Brewers Communicator. Now back to the show. Aaron, your lab has analyzed over 10,000 malts from 75 different malt houses in North America, and that means you have a unique vantage point on malt quality. What can your malt quality barometer tell us, and what trends are you seeing? Well, we we'll definitely see that, for instance, growers 
um, in the emerging growing areas like the Northeast and the Southeast, where there there hasn't been as much barley growing in the last few decades, it took a few years to hit their stride, to figure it out, um, to learn. I think in 2015, about 25% of the barley that was grown in New York was actually acceptable, like met the, even the minimum threshold for uh, for malting of in terms of protein and germination and 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 uh, and levels of disease uh, and then last year that number was more like seventy five percent and so right there that really helps along in creating uh, high quality malts um, in areas where it can be more difficult to source high quality grain um, again malsters they have a lot of skills but they can't take for instance barley that's not germinating and make a good malt out of that so it's been really um, it's been really encouraging and exciting to see that increase um, in the quality of grain that's even available in some of these regions. I think the biggest trend I see uh, in the is the expansion in the range of modification and enzyme levels that we're seeing in the malts being made. Um, very highly modified malt is is ideal for breweries that are looking to obtain maximum efficiency um, and lower their process times. Uh, I have this theory that well, I think one of the factors driving the need for ever lower beta-glucan levels is from the increase in the use of um, sterile membrane filtration, where 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 these um, gel-forming polymers of beta-glucan can be really problematic. But modifying to this extent isn't really necessary for most craft brewers. Um, using malts with more moderate levels of modification and lower diastatic power actually puts more control back in the hands of the brewers. Uh, I've seen some great examples, actually, of uh, malts being made that are purposely undermodified. Um, these can be used in making like stylistically appropriate beers, you know, if you want to use decoction, for example, or uh, in another example for barrel aging. Um, you know, for those kind of extended fermentations, having some larger molecules uh, available are really good to keep feeding the bugs um, for the long haul. Aaron, do you have enough visibility to make generalizations about, say, Canadian Copeland versus California Copeland? I think the Malster probably has the greatest degree of flexibility and control when it comes to creating the f something like flavor from a variety like Copeland. Um, the variety itself obviously brings something to the table. Uh, where it's grown, probably you know, not as big an impact as the environment, the weather, and the management practices um, that's, that's used to grow that grain. So for instance, you, know, you can take a variety like Copeland, you can put on more or less fertilizer to make the protein higher or lower. So the grower himself has, has a pretty big contribution. Then when you bring it into the maltose, I think that's where we see the biggest opportunity to create diversity. Um, uh, and, and that's where these guys do such a good job, um, making, taking that grain and then you know, making a range of products out of it. So the strategy that Curtis talked about they use at Admiral, when to make a Pilsner malt, they try to source a lower protein grain. It is what I call working with the grain, if you'll pardon the pun. Malsters have a lot of tools available to them um, and, and are very flexible in their process, right? They can change the levels of moisture, temperature, and time. But it's a lot easier to take a grain in the direction it wants to go than to force it maybe in a direction it doesn't want to go. 
And so making a Pilsner-style malt with a higher protein grain can be a lot more challenging. Doesn't mean you can't do it, but it means you're going to end up with something that's going to be a little bit different. You might have to fight against uh, DMS a little bit more because you know the precursors are made of protein. And so uh, this idea that you can sort of find grain at either varieties or at protein levels that that help you um, go in the direction that you want to go with your products um, is a good strategy. Curtis, you're doing floor malting at Admiral. Why did you decide to floor malt and what's been the outcome of that decision? Besides lower back pain and erratic sleep, of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, you're right. We, uh, we did decide to, to floor malt um, and we uh, we we make that decision every day to get out and um, and turn the floors. Um, we chose floor malting um, for a, a number of reasons. Um, one was just the uh, the storied history of floor malting. Um, we were uh, I uh, opened Admiral Maltings with with two brewers. One of them was Dave McLean um, uh, from Magnolia Brewing in San Francisco. And, um, at Magnolia, Dave always made, um, you know, a whole suite of delicious English style beers. Um, most of them featuring, uh, floor malted Maris Otter, um, that he sourced from one particular farm in, um, England. And so he's always had a kind of, you know, romance with, with floor malted grain. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was one reason, um, Second, uh, which just it seemed to fit our scale really well. Um, we do eight ton batches of barley, um, and at the time that we were designing and planning Admiral um, at that scale, we thought it was the the most feasible, reliable um, way to make high quality, consistent malt. Um, Although we're floor malting, we do have some um, kind of improvements over a old school traditional floor maltings. Um, we have a radiant cooled germination floor, so there's glycol running through the concrete, um, and we're able to um, directly cool the grain that way during germination, rather than um, you know needing to refrigerate the whole germination room. Um, so that's that allows us to uh, um, have a little more, yeah, a lot more control than uh, a maltster in England would have had, um, you know, in a traditional floor maltings. Um, and then another reason is uh, we have a, a pub attached, actually, actually sitting here right next to the malt floor. And um, something we wanted to do is, um, you know, kind of take malt out of the shadows and, and introduce malt to, um, you know, make brewers more familiar with malt and especially beer drinkers more familiar with malt. So we thought, you know, spreading it on the floor is um, a great way to get more visibility um, into beer's main ingredient. Um, and yeah, just the kind of as, as a newer, smaller maltster, um, being able to interact really intimately with with the grain um, to make adjustments on the fly as far as um, temperature on the floor, thickness of the bed, um, all of that, just uh, the flexibility of floor malting gave us uh, the most confidence that we'd be able to make high quality malt. 
So how does using floor malt production affect the flavor and functionality of your malt? Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a tough one to answer succinctly. Um, I think there's uh, you know a lot of uh, just anecdotal um, you know story about floor malting having a, a particular flavor. I'm not sure I've ever heard anyone characterize exactly you know, what that flavor is or what that flavor difference is. Um, my hunch is that you know every malt house has um, unique flavor and every malting system you know even one pneumatic malting system is going to be different than another pneumatic malt system and one floor malting um is going to be different than another um i think the the biggest functional difference is that the the germination is longer um and so you know for us that's one extra day of germination on the floor um there's a lot less airflow happening during during germination um so it takes longer for um the modification to proceed it takes longer to develop um alpha amylase um and so i think that uh that extended germination um produces a green malt with um a different composition so that when it goes into the kiln um it, it would then produce uh, a different composition of of um, Maillard products and and uh, compounds and aromas. Um, I think there's also a lot of you know conversation. I haven't seen any um, you know hard scientific research on this, but um, conversation about the different uh, composition of the microbial community on green malt in uh, floor malting versus pneumatic malting. Um, so having less or, you know, zero airflow during germination in floor malting would um, lead to a different microbial community than in an oxygen rich atmosphere like pneumatic malting. Um, so it's possible that that would also uh, impact, you know, what's, uh, what's either what the green malt itself is composed of or um you know perhaps those microbes are also producing some of the um aroma compounds that are associated with malt when we're trying to create flavor compounds we need building blocks so oftentimes i liken it to lego right so when you take your time during malting you're breaking things down that's taking pieces apart so that you can have those pieces, the sugars and amino acids, to put together later in the kiln. I know my kid loves to build with Lego. He's always complaining he doesn't have any pieces. And I'm like, well, you've got a whole room full of creations, but you have to take those apart. The barley has everything in it that you're going to need to make that flavor, but it's in the wrong form. It's large structures, large starches and proteins. When you, during the malting process, those are broken down into individual pieces. And then in the kiln, they're put back together in new and complex, unique, flavorful ways. So definitely the route that you take, the path uh, during malting, whether it's on the floor or in a vessel at long or slow, is going to have an impact on how the final malt will taste. Sebastian, you chose to go with pneumatic malting. Talk about that decision. So, um, I mean, us being here in the southeast, 
here we are very, very warm and humid for long, long periods of time. When I got this off the ground, the choice was because of the, you know, the, the, the ambient uh, conditions around um, not to not to do floor malting, but specifically look for uh, equipment that essentially gives me uh, as much uh, control as I have in order to uh, compensate for all these different, uh, you know, insufficiencies that I get from the raw grain coming into the malt house. And so we have a have a, a ten ton uh, nomadic solid and box here, uh, and two side by side, um, and uh, and so in our case, uh, the key is to uh, in the initial steep get as much air in as possible. So uh, we have a very very vigorous aeration in our steep vessel, and then uh, steep out at about thirty thirty two percent into our germination units. And then uh, uh, after that single first steeping day, basically go long uh, and slow. And that means um, initially slightly warmer on the germination and then uh, increasingly dropping the temperature to to uh, slow the, the, the germination down, uh, let the slow kernels catch up to make a, a homogenous batch, um, which I think is one of the key things that, uh, uh, nomadic malting uh, has over floor malting that that because of the forced air, uh, y y you can you can sort of dictate uh, much more precisely uh, an even temperature across the across the entire bed and all the kernels, and that gives you a slightly more um, control over over some of those uh, details and uh, and then. Um, you know, we do six or sometimes seven days just because of uh, uh, the way we, we kind of give our our malt time to kind of get to the point where we want it to be, uh, you know, uh, and and that's really, and that sort of drives, I think, our, our overall, uh, you know, malt house uh, flavor or you know, our functional terroir that we make here. And... Uh, and then the kilning is is really just uh, a simple a simple drying process um, that that down here I think is very similar to anywhere else. But the the germination uh, is unique. So there's a lot of cooling, as you can imagine, and uh, and there's no I, I never have to add any uh, moisture to the uh, fresh air coming in. Uh, because of the the humidity right, that's that's around here, so there's the, the or the air that I'm bringing in is always more or less saturated by the time I've cooled it down. So um, yeah, and that, I think that also probably adds to a to us having a a unique uh, a unique flavor profile in terms of the the you know the the fresh air that's going in. John, it's fascinating how it's the differences even in the design of the malt house that's adding to the variation of the product. A lot of the smaller craft malt houses that have opened in the last 10 years, some have designed their own equipment. Um, some have bought and, uh, equipment that is, is new, new, new to the market. Um, they're using floor malt, right? Tradi bringing back traditional techniques. Uh, I couldn't tell you when the last floor malt in North America closed, but you know, it's only been back for about, you know, 10 years. And it definitely didn't have years. radiant cooling in the floor. I'll tell you that. Right. 
And so these innovations uh, is what is also adding to the diversity of styles and products. And the small, uh, more nimble nature of these businesses uh, means they can experiment. I have to say, I've never seen so many different combinations of grain and malt styles. You know, everything from a crystal rye malt to caramel oat malt to... Um, so I think that the, their size also allows them to be more creative and try things. And this, I think, is giving brewers an up, huge opportunity um, to make their beers uh, with ingredients that they never uh, could have got their hands on before. And you start to use malts to drive creativity in brewing. Um, it doesn't just have to be um, playing around with new varieties of hops. <laughs> That was Aaron McLeod, Curtis Davenport, and Sebastian Wolfram here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Aaron joins me again next week along with two more maltsters for part two of our conversation, which is focused on specialty malt styles and flavor development. You've heard me talking about the 2020 World Brewing Congress for several months now. As I've mentioned, it's my favorite industry conference. I've been looking forward to it since the 2016 WBC ended. Unfortunately, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we won't be able to gather in Minneapolis as planned. As much as that stinks, there is a pretty serious silver lining. WBC 2020 is going fully virtual, which means you can access the world's most cutting-edge research in brewing science and technology easily and affordably from the comfort of your own home. Registration for WBC Connect is now open, with information on both free and paid programming options. Visit worldbrewingcongress.org for details, or check the direct link in the show notes. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Let's talk.